Sure am thankful that we have this charge from the Lord to speak his word confidently. For it's the word of God that gives us strength and power. It's the word of God and the power of the gospel that gives us boldness as we proclaim the gospel and as we strive to live the gospel out. So may we always teach and proclaim these things with great confidence. Not confidence in men, but confidence in God. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. We'll continue in our look at this epistle beginning in chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning. The title of the sermon today is Experiential Sanctification. Experiential Sanctification. And we could insert a few words there. We could be looking at experiential Christianity. We could be looking at experiential salvation. But ultimately, as we think about the idea of this text, it's the idea of our experiencing Christ and growing up into our salvation in and through Him. We note that it's those who are in Christ who experience salvation, those who have new life in Christ that can walk in the way that is explained in the text before us. I ask that you will stand with me in honor and reverence for the word, and we'll read our text, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. This is the holy and inspired and inerrant word of the living and true God. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, And all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated, and as you're doing so, I ask that you bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is your holy and inspired and inerrant word. It is your word that is powerful. It is your word that is mighty. It is your spirit who has the strength and the ability to write your word upon our hearts. That is our prayer. That is our request. That is our great need that as your people, as the saints who are called out by the eternal decree of God, that we would be sanctified in the truth of your word by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. Lord, this is a time where the strength of men doesn't just fail, it's inadequate. It, It does nothing, it adds nothing to the study and understanding and application of your word. So we pray And we would ask and we would beg and even plead, Lord, that you would see fit to cause your spirit to move mightily and powerfully among us today. Lord, show us our sins. Grant us repentance. Cause us to long for and to desire the truth of your word. Cause us to grow up in respect to our salvation because... We who are in Christ have indeed tasted the kindness of our God. 
Lord, for any who are here that have not tasted your kindness in and through Christ, is our prayer that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, would you take your word and use it to cause the blinders and the scales to come off the eyes to allow sinners to see themselves as they are before you, as broken and condemned and on a pathway to eternal destruction if they do not fall and throw themselves upon the grace that you make available through the blood and the person and the work of Christ. So, Lord, would you save sinners, and would you sanctify the saints? God, we are wholly dependent upon you. Grant us to see your glory, to see your goodness, and to see your call to us to grow, to be mature, to put away sin, and to experience to a deeper and fuller measure your kindness and your grace toward us. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So again, we are looking at the idea this morning of experiential sanctification. We would likely all agree that the Christian faith as delivered in the scriptures is anything but based on our experiences and emotions. For salvation is a work of God, a work of God alone. We cannot bring our emotions and our experience into play when it comes to the idea of our salvation. The world will tell you, just follow your heart. And we reject that notion because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. So from that perspective, we reject the idea of experiential Christianity. However, what we see in the text before us is that there is absolutely an element whereby we judge ourselves and our lives by what we experience. When Peter says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, he is literally saying, if you have experienced the kindness of the Lord. If you have experienced the kindness of the Lord, you will not do the things that are told that you are instructed not to do in this text, and you will do what is commanded and exhorted in this text if you have experienced Christ, if you have come to know Christ in a saving way. So how do we rely on our experience without giving in to the temptation of relying on the experience and the emotion of the flesh? That's that's one question that we must work out in our minds today. How do we experience salvation without elevating our experience to a level that is unbiblical? And really, the answer is in that question there, that no emotion and no experience can be given any credence or any authority over what the Scripture says. If you have an experience and it is contrary to Scripture, it is the Scripture that is true, not your opinion based on that experience. We have experienced salvation in Christ, and we are called to grow up into that salvation. We grow up in that salvation by walking with Christ, by putting off sin, and by longing for 
the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. Really, that's Peter's primary instruction, his primary exhortation as we look at this text, that you are to put off sin, that you are to long for and to pursue and desire the truth of God's Word, and thereby you will grow in salvation. Really, this is as much of a foolproof process of how to be sanctified as we will find in Scripture. You don't often find a step one, two, three process in how to be sanctified, but that's exactly what we have in the text before us today. But it comes with verse three as kind of the the roots or the undergirding to it that this only works if you have experienced or tasted the kindness of God. You must be in Christ. You must have died to your sin through the faith that God grants and then be made alive together with Christ. And then you put off sin. Then you long for the word. And then by that putting off sin and longing for the word of God, you will grow up in your salvation. So we must not put the cart before the horse to say that We do these things, and then we will be saved. No, the Lord saves. The Lord brings new life. And then this is the outworking of the experience of salvation. So let's begin then looking at verse 1 and looking at this process of experiential sanctification and look at the idea of putting off sin. Putting off sin. Verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So we see this list of sins. We see this list of things that we are to put away or to put aside. And having just come off of a study of Galatians, the big question ringing out in my mind is why? Why is this list of sins given the way it is? Why does Peter only list five things to put off when we consider the the great need to grow in and through the word of God. Think back to Galatians chapter 5, when Paul was contrasting the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, Paul listed 15 deeds of the flesh that we are to put away. And then he summed it up by saying, and things like these. So he gave you 15 things to put off, to put aside, to put away, and said, and things like these are deeds of the flesh, and you must put to death the deeds of the flesh. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, Paul tells the Colossians to be dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts idolatry. He continues, put aside anger and wrath, and malice, and slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Again, that's a a long list, 12 or 13 items there of the things that we are to put off. So why, under the inspiration of the Spirit, does Peter give us only five items? Why does he offer this shorter list? And truth be told, we don't fully know. We, we don't have a full answer, but there's, I think, contextual clues on either side of our passage that kind of will tell you what Peter is getting at here. You think back to chapter 1, Peter's written to be holy as God is holy. And as we looked at last week, 
He said, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's clue number one. He's talking about the relational lives of believers from one believer to another. If you are to pursue this type of growth in salvation, you must fervently love one another from the heart. And these sins listed in chapter 2, verse 1, are relational sins. They are sins that most typically take place between one believer and another, or certainly between unbelievers and believers. And then think about the subsequent text, the next text in chapter 2, where Peter is writing about the church being living stones, that we are living stones that are fitted together by God to be his holy temple and his holy people. What would stop us from being fitted together as God's holy temple? It's sin. It's relational sin where we as the body of Christ are not able to walk in unity. And so Peter says, put these things off, walk in the word, and grow up in your salvation so that you are able to be fitted together as a temple of God. And I think this context gives us clear clues, but if we want to broaden out this idea, look directly at what Peter says. Put aside all malice. Put aside all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So we have this broad and encompassing all because this is not just believer to believer, but it's also how we interact with the lost world around us. I think the idea when we think about all malice, as we'll look at in a second, really means all sin, all of of any and every kind of sin, but especially in the context here, it's this relational sin that causes friction and division and disunity among the church. So let's look then at these sins. Let's look specifically at what Peter instructs here, since it's a shorter list, we can dive into this a little bit and and examine what he says. He he begins by saying, put off all malice. Put off, put aside all malice. Now, that's a word that might kind of conjure some specific ideas in your mind, but really it's a generic term in the Greek. It speaks of wickedness, of general, general type of evil. So there's not a necessarily a specific type of evil or wickedness or sin in mind here. In James chapter 1, James exhorts us to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, this same Greek term. And he says to do that in order to be able to humbly receive the word that is implanted. So there's a a real close tie-in there. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is contrasting the idea of living in kindness and having tender hearts and living in forgiveness. And he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Again, the same Greek word. So it it contrasts the idea of a loving and forgiving and kind and tender heart. It's just this general sort of wickedness. Vine's Dictionary says that it's a badness in quality. It's that which is the opposite of moral goodness or moral excellence. So Peter's drive and his call for sanctification begins really right where we think it would. 
that you must put off sin. Any sin, every sin, you must lay it aside. You must come before the Lord. If you are to be sanctified, you must come before the Lord with a humble, with a pure, with a softened, and with a pliable heart that the Lord and his word can plow up that ground and he can show you your sin and by his spirit bring that sin to light and grant you repentance. So put aside all malice, all evil, all wickedness. Peter doesn't stop there. He says, put aside all malice and all deceit. All malice and all deceit. This is another interesting Greek term. It's the word dolos, not to be confused with doulos, the slave, but dolos. It means uh, treachery, fraudulence, deceit, or guile. It is, as MacArthur said, it denotes guile, dishonesty, falsehood, and treachery. It could even be used to speak of a bait. So it's like, like a fishing bait where you're trying to, trying to catch something by tricking it. You're, you catch a fish by tricking it with the bait that you put on the hook. That's what this, this term <clears throat> has in mind. Uh, we, we can see a picture of this. Turn with me, if you will, back to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and this type of person is kind of illustrated in the story of Acts 13. We'll pick up at verse 4. And we'll read through verse 10, and and this is a story. This is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They're out proclaiming the gospel, and then we get this quick story about this magician, this man who wants to turn people from the truth. Acts 13, verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, Paul and Barnabas, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. And this man was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was his name translated, was opposing them. He was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he fixed his gaze on him, and he said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? The word deceit in verse 10 is the same word dolos in 1 Peter chapter 2. This man, this magician, is really a good illustration of this type of deceitful person. This type of deceitful person is, as Paul said, a son of the devil. He is an enemy of all righteousness, and those things which are, those paths which are straight, marked out by the Lord, those things which are clear and evident and apparent, the one who is deceitful, he makes those things crooked and unclear. There is no more demonic and ungodly thing than to take the truth of God's word and just twist it, just sprinkle a little 
error, a little falsehood, a little heresy into it, and then try to push that off as the truth. That makes you an enemy, as Paul says, an enemy of righteousness. So what does it mean to be full of deceit? It means to twist and to pervert the truth for your own sordid gain. That's what the magician was trying to do in Acts 13. He was twisting the truth because he wanted to remain an authority figure before the proconsul, the man who was kind of the governor over that region or area. So before writing that off, we say, okay, I would never do that. Uh, you, you would say, this is not something as a follower of Christ that you would ever want to do. But dear friend, you still have flesh in you. You are still battling the flesh. The flesh is evil. It is deceitful. It is wicked. And it would love nothing more than to cause you to become this type of deceitful. So we must be on guard We must stand firmly upon the truth and nothing but the truth. The fleshly heart is full of self-love, and that is ultimately what this type of deceit comes from, is self-love, a desire to push forward your own opinion or your own agenda. So we must be on guard and we must stand firm against this type of sin. So Peter says, put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. He continues on, hypocrisy, pretending to be something or someone that you are not. We understand what hypocrisy is. It's that idea of somebody wearing a mask to present themselves as something or someone that they are not. What do you think a treacherously deceitful person would rely on to push forward their own sinful agenda? How about presenting themselves as something or someone that they are not to gain authority or to gain clout with people? That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is bred out of a deceitful, deceiving heart. But what does the Lord call call for us to have as we come before him? We are to have an honestly humbled heart. We must remember that the Lord sees all things. He sees and knows the depths of our hearts. He knows the deepest and the darkest corners of your heart. He knows those desires that may well up in you to put yourself first. He knows those desires that that you may constantly fight against to be liked by the world, to be thought of well by the world, to go out and gain a position of authority in the workplace so you can get promotions and make more money. The Lord sees all of that, and that is hypocrisy if you pretend like you don't have those sins in your heart. You come before the Lord with a humble heart. As the psalmist says, you ask the Lord to search me and to know me. And if you find, Lord, any grievous way in my heart, reveal it to me and lead me in the everlasting way. What is the everlasting way? It is the way of repentance. The way of repentance. If you want to walk with the Lord and be in the everlasting way, the path to eternal life, ask the Lord to show you your sin, and he will do so, and then you repent. Repent and turn from that sin. So we're to put off all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. 
And the next Peter says, we're also to put away and put off all envying. You know, that spirit and that mindset that begrudges another person for their success or maybe the things that they have in life. I think we would all probably agree that nothing will suck the life out of a person more than a spirit of envy. If you allow an envious spirit to grow up in your heart, you will have your vitality drained because you will never be content with anything. Envy is a monstrous sin that you must put to death because you need to be content. I need to be content in the lot in life that the Lord has given me and has given you. Put aside all envy. If you don't, you will always be seeking to please the monster of self. And self is a monster. Put it away. Put it to death. So we put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and finally we must put away all slander. I like the translation of the King James here. It says, put away all evil speakings. Slander is that idea of speaking evilly behind someone's back. It is that idea of of character assassination by speaking that which is not true. We have to We have to put that in there, that idea of speaking that which is not true, because we have to hold one another accountable for sin. But as Mike said this morning, we cover that sin as long as we can and still be true to the truth of God's Word and still practice biblical accountability, and that means that you don't always slander by speaking the truth. When the truth about someone or someone's actions are required to get a full picture of what's going on, we speak the truth. But if you go out and speak the truth about somebody just because you want to run their name down, you are a slanderer and you are a gossip and you need to fall on your knees and repent before the Lord. We do not slander. Put away all slander, all envy, all hypocrisy, All deceit, all malice, put it all away. Cut off the arm of the flesh. Walk in holiness and righteousness before the Lord. So what's the point? You know, you ask the question as we explain Scripture, you come to the point where you say, so what? Well, what what do we do with this truth? Peter's calling his readers to put away their former life. For formerly they were deceiving, backbiting, malicious haters and pretenders. And Peter says, you must put all of that aside. Not put away most of it and hope that the rest will go away eventually. No, you put it all away. You get rid of all of that sin. Your life in Christ dictates that all of those things ought to be in the past. Paul said something interesting in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. He says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among 
the saints. That is the seriousness of our call to put away sin, that it should be put so far away that it's utterly ridiculous for somebody to accuse us of that type of sin. These things should not even be named among you. He began chapter 5, Paul did, talking about being imitators of God and walking in the love of God, loving Christ and letting that be evident in the way that you live. So we must be pure in heart and deed and put away these deeds of the flesh. The opposite of these five terms, I think, can be summed up really in one idea, and that is the idea of humility. You walk in humility, you will put away these things. When you elevate others above yourself, when you see yourself rightly before God as a filthy, wretched sinner who's saved only by the grace of God, who's sanctified only by the Spirit of God, when you walk in humility, you will put away these things because you do not elevate yourself over God or over your fellow believers. So walk in humility. Matthew Henry offered this as a summary, and I think it's very helpful. He said, our best services toward God will neither please him nor profit us if we are not conscientious in our duties to men. These sinful deeds must be laid aside or else we cannot receive the word of God as we ought to do. These deeds must be put aside or you cannot receive the word of God. If you are to grow up in salvation, as we'll see in just a moment, you must be able to receive the word of God to nourish and to transform your heart and your soul and your life. And you can never do that if you don't put away sin. Our communion with God, the communion with God that leads to our sanctification, will not happen. It will be broken if you don't put away sin. So we must be putting off sin, and secondly, we must be desiring the Word. Desiring the Word. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Put all those things away, and then like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. Long for the pure milk of the Word, like a a newborn baby, longs for its mother's milk. This is an amazing word picture because it makes so clear the point that Holy Scripture is making for us. You've probably all been around a baby. You know that if a baby can do one thing, it can scream and cry when it's hungry. If there's one thing that a baby can do, it is let you know that it's ready for mealtime. It longs for that food. It finds nourishment in that milk from its mother or from the formula that's been designed and developed or the whatever you give them to replace that milk. That is what a baby needs to grow and to be healthy, to receive nutrition. You would, you would be looked at as though you were absolutely crazy if you were to walk up to a, a newborn baby. Paul uses the word newborn here. If you were to walk up, or Peter, I'm sorry, Peter uses the word newborn. If you were to walk up to a baby and give them a Coke or a cup of coffee or a bottle of water or anything like that, you would be looked at as though you had gone insane because babies need milk. They need the nutrients from milk. Their bodies only handle milk. 
That is what makes them healthy. And so this is the picture that Peter is painting about the believer, about what we must long for and what we need. So let's think about that idea of longing for something. It, it becomes clear in this picture, but I think we can even dig a little bit further into this to, to understand and help kind of zone it in to apply it to our lives as adults. The, the Greek word here is epipatheo, epipatheo, and it's most often used in a relational sense in regards to some type of relationship. Paul used it in Romans chapter 1, verse 11. He told the Roman Christians, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. I long to see you. I desire to see you and to be with you. Paul also used this about the Christian's desire for heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, he said, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So we understand this is a word that, that reveals a strong desire, a strong relational need or want to be filled with something, to be filled with the, the relational sense of being with your brothers and sisters in Christ, as in Romans 1, or being in heaven, putting off this body of death and being clothed in, in eternal righteousness and being in heaven. It's not a cold word. It's not a dull word. It's not emotionless. It's not bland. It speaks to a deep, real longing. So with that, what does Peter say? He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Long for the pure truth of God's word. We just let that settle for a moment. Long for God's truth. Long for God's pure truth. When we see the word purity in the scripture, there are two main words that are often used to be translated as pure or purity. One of them is the Greek word hagnos, which is closely related to the word that from where, which we get holiness. It means that which is pure or undefiled, that which is clean. There's also the word katharos, which speaks to something being cleansed or chaste, uh, chastity, that, that cleanliness uh, of an object or a person or a heart. But neither one of those words are used here. The word here for the pure milk of the Word of God is the Greek term adolos. Adolos, and now maybe that sounds familiar because we've already talked about the opposite word of that this morning. The word dolos, back in verse 1, was the word translated deceit. And when you add an A in the Greek, just like in the English, it typically takes word and flips it to be the opposite. So the pure milk of the word is the adolos milk of the word. It is that which is unpolluted, pure, truthful. It is the unadulterated word of God. That is what we long for as God's people the pure truth, the pure truth as we read, the pure truth as we are taught, the pure truth to be preached, the pure truth to be sung. We long for the pure, unadulterated, 
undefiled, perfectly cleansed, perfectly true word of God. So then you think about it. Peter's writing to believers. Why would Peter make such a strong point in his writing about longing for the pure and undeceitful and undefiled word? Why would he make that point very strongly as it's made in the original? Frankly, I think it's because people don't like the truth of the word of God. Our sin pushes back against the truth. The flesh hates the truth. I think people are also scared and offended by the unadulterated truth of God's word. You can be scared of it because the word of God is powerful. You will not sit under the authority of the true word of God and remain unchanged. Consider Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why does Peter exhort the believers to long for the pure word of God because frankly they may have been afraid of it because it judges the thoughts and the intentions of your heart and if we're all honest we would all understand and and admit to the fact that the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts are not always pure now we can't use that as an excuse we can't say that with a defeatist type of attitude But we can admit, because God sees our hearts, that they are not always pure. Our motives and our desires are not always honoring God. And it should give you a great sense of reverence to consider that his word is so powerful that it pierces all the way down to the heart and to the thought and the intention of your soul. That should give you pause. That should cause you to come to the Word of God with a sense of reverence. Spurgeon, um, you may have heard this quote before. In fact, many of you I know have. Spurgeon said of the Word of God that the Word is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Okay, so that applies real well, and that's really good news for apologetics. When, when we want to go proclaim the gospel and somebody wants to deny the word of God, we allow the word of God to come forth like a lion and it will defend itself. But that lion of the word of God is also coming to judge the intentions of your heart. It will crush and devour the idols of your heart and the flesh in you is terrified of that. The flesh that remains with you until the Lord calls you home, does not want to let go of that sin and those idols. But Peter says, long for the pure, unadulterated truth of God's word so that it can come in and do and complete that work. So why are some hesitant when coming to the scriptures? Because God's word is powerful And it will not allow those in Christ to remain in sin. God's word is powerful and it will not allow those in Christ to remain in sin. Light exposes darkness. 
Those who are in darkness remain in darkness because their deeds are evil and they don't want them to be exposed by the light. God's word is light against sin. So if you live your life in the shadows because of sin, let me exhort you to come out of the darkness. Let God's word shine a light on that sin, confess and repent of that sin, and walk with Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that if you confess your sin, you will be judged harshly or looked down upon. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And you have an advocate before the Father, the man, Jesus Christ, your great high priest. Confess and repent and turn from your sin. Confess and repent and restore union and fellowship with your God and with his people. We must live on and live by the word of God. Like a newborn baby requires the milk of its mother to receive nutrients, we must receive the life-sustaining strength and transformation that comes from the pure and undefiled word of God. So we must be putting off sin, we must be desiring the word, and then thirdly, this comes to its conclusion kind of at the end of verse 2, we must be growing in maturity, growing in maturity. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The most literal reading of that is that you might grow up to salvation. You might grow up into your salvation. You might grow up into being the person that Christ purchased you to be. Christ purchased you so that he could wash you with his blood, so that he could present you to himself as his bride, undefiled and unstained by sin. Grow up by the word into that salvation. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 4, that the Lord gave to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to to the fullness of Christ. The Lord gave people to the church so that we would grow up to mature manhood in the faith, that we would grow up to be spiritual adults. It's the great goal of the believer. Uh, We are to glorify God, and the way that we glorify Him is by growing up, by putting away sin, by clothing ourselves in actual righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so we must live in such a way. What did Paul tell the Galatians? What was his great longing and desire for them in Galatians chapter 4? He said, I greatly desire. I am at labor again with you to see Christ formed in you. That is our goal. 
That is what we strive after, to have Christ formed in us so we grow up, so we are not spiritual infants, so we are not spiritual children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but we are adults. We stand firm upon the truth and we resist temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A child can't resist anything. But a spiritual adult walking in the power of the Spirit, filled with their mind, with their mind filled with the Word of God, you stand firm against the devil and he will flee from you. Temptation will not overcome you when you stand firm in the Spirit through the Word. So, dear friends, I say this with as much love and affection as I can, knowing that this statement applies to me as much as it does to any of you. Grow up. Be mature in Christ. Do not be a spiritual child. Grow up. Where does this growth and maturity come from? How do we grow up? Well, it's right here again, clear as, clear as the nose on our faces in the text. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it, by the pure milk of the Word, you will grow up in salvation. Our maturity comes from God's Spirit working in God's people through God's Word. Nothing more Nothing less, and certainly nothing else. The Lord's work comes through exactly what Peter expresses here. And if you're still with me, please listen closely to this, because we need to understand what, what the text says. We need to listen closely so we can understand and apply this properly. Peter says to long for the pure milk of the Word. The Lord's work through His Word doesn't come necessarily, again, track with me through this, through the study of Scripture or the memorization of Scripture or the meditation upon Scripture or even the practice of the Word. The Lord brings growth in His people when your desire is for the Word. That doesn't mean that those other things are wrong and you should you should pursue those things. You should do and practice those things, but ultimately you fall short of the goal if that desire for the Word, that longing for the Word is not what drives those things. If you're doing anything but waking up in the morning with your mind filled with desire for the truth, you are, I won't say missing the mark, but you're falling short of the ultimate goal. You're falling short of the ultimate prize. You must have an insatiable desire for the Word. We all have lives. We all have things that we must give our time to, but we should strive to have hearts and minds that are fixated upon the Word of God that when you must put that Bible away and go about the other things of your day, the first thing on your mind is that desire to get back to the Word to get back to communion with the Lord. I love MacArthur's take on this. He said that in view of postmodern culture's relentless 
output of informational junk food through media and even through so-called Christian pulpits. He says, all of which causes spiritual malnutrition and dulls appetites for genuine spiritual food. Believers must commit to regular nourishment from God's word. You must commit to regular nourishment from God's word. If you want to grow within yourself a desire for the truth, that appetite is built by study of Scripture and prayer and communion with the Lord and a heart that falls before Him and begs Him to increase those things in you. Ask the Lord to give you a greater desire for the Word. As we work towards concluding, I'm going to make a request of each one of you here. Request that you would commit yourself to taking practical steps to being nourished by God's word and increasing your desire for the truth. That is a legitimate request and a legitimate exhortation. Go from here today and take practical steps to increase your personal desire for the word. What did Jesus say when Satan was trying to tempt him there in the desert? He said that man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Take practical steps this week to fill your mind with the truth and increase your desire to know God's truth and to commune with God through his word. You've tasted the kindness of the Lord, and if you're in Christ, you have. You've tasted his kindness and his mercy and his grace. If you have tasted that, these desires will be increasing in you. They, the Lord will cause these to grow and, and cause you to desire more and more and more of the truth. And not only will the desire for truth be natural and increasing, but as you walk with Christ tasting his kindness, your desire for sin will decrease. As you fill your spirit with the truth, as that is where you receive your nourishment and your food and your sustaining strength, the desire for sin will wither like a branch cut off from a tree. It will wither and die. Feed yourself upon the truth. Dear friends, by God's grace, we must strive to put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And by His grace, we must strive to long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word as a baby longs for its mother's milk. And we must long for those things so that to the end, for the express purpose that we grow up in our salvation. We do that because we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We do that because we know the great cost of our salvation, and we know God's standard of holiness for his people. Put away sin, long for the word, and grow up in salvation by the work of God's Spirit, 
to the great end of God's glory. Let's close in prayer.